Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is uh, Elmo Adore Jr. and I have my friend Jesse. Bro, can you uh, tell us something about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's good to talk to you again. We've had several conversations in the past. And um, I mean, probably the primary interest is my worldview. So briefly, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Um, I am more specifically Reformed Calvinist Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I live in Ohio, um, in the United States, and I am a case manager for a uh, mental uh, mental health demographic, primarily schizophrenia, schizoaffective clients. I do that 40 hours a week right now, and uh, and then I also go to college at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, and um, that has lended me a lot of good opportunities, just an access to a, a very particular kind of reading set. And uh, so I'm growing there. Me and my wife, we just got a house last year. So we're kind of sitting stable at the moment, trying to start a family while working and doing school and so on, renovating the house. And uh, it's a, probably a pretty good brief overview of me. Um, and me and Elmo have had several conversations in the past about um, our different perspectives in theology, and that's always been wonderful and interesting. So, <laughs> yeah, and um, the 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 guys know, or the people that listen to my podcast know how much my view, my worldview has been changing throughout. <laughs> but yeah, um, I myself also uh, am a Christian, and um, whatever I, uh, views that I've had before. Right now, I believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and I hope that everyone would um, let it, let him into their lives. So, um, Jesse, I wanted to uh, know why you're a Calvinist. Were you born or raised in a family that way, or did you discover that path? Yeah, so, uh, no, I was not born um, into a Reformed family. My dad was probably actually uh, one of the first... Uh, redeemed people out of his family. He grew up in a pretty large family. And I think he probably pretty strictly remains the only redeemed individual in Christ as a part of his family. Uh, he just passed away in March of this year. So he lived 59 years and he uh, grew up, he grew our family. Uh, he had four kids and uh, of them, I'm the oldest. And uh, we, from when I was a child, the first church I remember going to was a Wesleyan Methodist Church. It was a United Methodist Church, but it was Wesleyan theology, mm-hmm. and uh, and I didn't really, you know, there was no particular kind of theological discussions that were really going on there because I was so young. I think we got out of that church. Um, pro- probably, uh, I, I'd have to say, prior to me being ten, and we we moved to a non-denominational church, which was a good church, but it was a uh, it was attempting to be gospel-centered without necessarily addressing a lot of the theological particularities mm-hmm. that have uh, become relevant through the past several hundred years, specifically with the outgrowth of Protestantism. Um, and and so it was a good church to get some good fundamentals, and that was about it. And then I joined the Army. I went away for several years and uh, started to just to kind of try to branch out and understand theologically uh, what the Bible was saying more as a point of curiosity and uh, came back home and then probably about a year or two after coming back home I started to explore names like uh, so that was that was probably when I was like I'd say 2022 probably is when I seriously started to explore apologetics and theology that was Ravi Zacharias it was William Lane Craig it was uh, a lot of the names under the RZIM ministry. Um, who else? I'm trying to think. Um, John Lennox was one, you know, and then you get all of the more prominent atheists um, like Christopher Hitchens, um, trying to, uh, Lawrence Krauss, um, and, and a lot of these names I uh, started to explore. And then I encountered Dr. James White. And Dr. James White kind of just showed up in like the suggested video sections, and I remember clicking on it, watching a full two and a half hour to three hour debate, and my mind being absolutely blown with the with the depth of uh, the utilization of the text 
in the debate, the reliance on the Word of God as the Word of God, as being as as being believed to be inerrant and infallible, depending upon it in that fashion explicitly. So that really caught me by surprise, drew me into uh, figuring out then what he was, which I found out he was Calvinist, and a lot of his extended theology was just really robust. It was really good. It was really good, and he attempted to consistently substantiate everything that he said from Scripture in a consistent fashion. So that was very persuasive to me. Mm-hmm. So I went from Wesleyanism, probably, to start out, to Calvinism, to end so far. I don't see me moving again, but uh, that's where I'm at right now. Okay. And uh, But what particular part of Calvinism has attracted you to it? Is it uh, more of its coherentism or that it sort of like reflected your own spiritual uh, uh, consciousness, I guess, of your faith? Yeah, probably, uh, probably it's, it's methodology, mm-hmm. probably that it, it's consistent, or at least obviously it seems that way to me. And so, um, my issue was that I didn't, I mean, I, I think that there are certain things, uh, like natural theology that appeal to the human mind as far as, uh, one must presuppose certain attributes of God, which is, for example, that he is all good, that he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, and that he, uh, that if he is the height of reality and in fact transcends reality, then he should be uh, the most glorified being in existence because just by default of his nature, that's what he is. And so that was kind of um, kind of an internal, uh, you know, not having any of the tools to reason through theological difficulties. That was kind of the main tool that I relied upon is that whatever glorifies God the most should probably be true because God is most worthy of glory. So it's kind of like that age-old thing that atheists mock uh, mock uh, theists or otherwise people of religion by saying that my God is bigger than your God, like my dad is bigger than your dad. Well, that was a very good methodology for me. That really did appeal to me because in the end, I found out that the Calvinistic God, Yahweh, right, kind of theological anachronism there, but it's fun, mm-hmm. is that my God, Yahweh, is bigger than your God, Yahweh. And so that is when I started to read a lot of theological books. That's held true in the theological tradition of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I'm curious, though, is that you would agree with me that Christianity is uh, focused on the re- personal relationship between a believer and Jesus Christ, right? Yes. And would, do you have this intimacy and relationship with Christ in your daily life? And can you tell us more about that? Yes, I do. So um, I'm not uh, one who I do not, I don't see explicitly. Like you have uh, probably the most prominent example are the cries of the prophets before God, like in Psalms, or you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, uh, pouring his heart out to God, you have interactions where you have the individual explicitly uh, emptying his heart before God. You have in Luke 18 where you have the, like the rich man, uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry, the tax collector and the uh, Pharisee both go, and I believe that it is to the temple, and the the, uh, tax collector stands there on his knees, not even not even looking up, but beating his breast, saying that I'm unworthy. And you have the Pharisee saying that, oh, I am happy. I'm glad that I'm not like this this man, oh, Lord. Uh, I'm glad that I am not a sinner like he is. So a personal relationship with Christ, I very much do believe I have. um, One of my personal struggles is to engage prayer regularly and seriously, as I should, but on the other end of the scale, you have the risk of that becoming formulaic and empty, like I think some religions might convey, where it's it's a lot of a it's a lot of liturgy without a lot of proper orientation of heart. Like liturgy is good, mm-hmm. but liturgy can be um, it can almost be like you're just 
rephrasing empty words without your heart being aligned. And so for me, um, as I see, like you read Isaiah 1, probably the closest relationship with the Lord is loving him, seeking him in his word, speaking to him in the silence of your heart, and uh, contemplating his purpose in your life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and, and the practice of applying his purpose in your life. Holding back your tongue, loving your neighbor where they might otherwise be crappy people, um, you know, uh, extending yourself out, contemplating, contemplating the word is big, I would have to say. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then it, it seems to me, though, that um, because Calvinism is uh, sort of uh, not fam- very familiar to a lot of people, could you uh, explain what it is? And maybe some of it, uh, may, its main points, so that people who don't understand can have an, can catch up. Yeah. So um, I would say a little bit less specific to Calvinism mm-hmm. are the five solas, which are foundational set of principles that are more unified around the Reformation. And they are sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, and sola dio gloria. So you have sola scripture, which is uh, essentially uh, scripture is the sole and founding rule of faith. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that you make the book your idol. It doesn't mean that um, that it is anything more than words written on a piece of paper, but that it does define doctrine and dogma. It defines practice of the Christian life. You do not, you don't derive uh, how you should practice your faith before God outside of anything of from God's word. Uh, sola fide is that you are justified by faith, faith alone. You're not justified by faith and then works, or faith and works. You're justified by faith alone, which then produces works. It, the works are the outgrowth of a faith, and you, in fact, can have works and no faith and yet be unjustified. So you then also have uh, sola gratia, which is by grace alone. That's like Ephesians 2, um, which also sola fide would probably uh, be from Galatians 2, in that it is not a par- up to the one who wills or works, but up to the one who has grace, which is God in Romans 9. And so... One is saved explicitly by the grace of God, apart from anything that man can merit on his own. Um, Sola Christus is by Christ alone. There is no savior. There is no mediator between uh, men and God. I believe that that is First Timothy. I may be incorrect, but there is no, I think it's First Timothy 3. There is no mediator between men and God. It is Christ alone. And then you have Soli Dio Gloria. So ironically... The principle that I started out uh, utilizing in order to attempt to determine which theological tradition or which um, uh, which denomination, if you will, because that's a little bit different than theological tradition, was correct, was solely Dio Gloria. Is to is glory to God alone. Is that the max and uh, chief of man, like you read in the Heidelberg Catechism? Uh, question number one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so God's glory is preeminent in all other uh, purposes to our life. So obviously to revel and to pleasure in God and to worship him are all, uh, they're all hedonistic uh, pursuits, if you will. But they are hedonistic pursuits that glorify God because he's the only thing that can satisfy those desires. Mm -hmm. So um, in that fashion, those are the five solas that more generally would define uh, Reformed theology. And then more specifically, you have TULIP, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So... Those we can get into as well, but I didn't. I wanted to hit on the solas before we moved on anything else. Okay, okay. So uh, when we when you talk about, for example, um, by Christ alone, would that 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 would be by faith, right? 
Yeah, yeah, you cannot engage the mediator absent of faith. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in, in what, in, for example, how would someone know that uh, they have faith in Christ? Would it be something that, it, in a sense, that they have the proper knowledge or, of who Christ is in order to believe in Him properly? Uh, that's difficult. I mean, uh, let me see if I can find it really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so, fear, trembling, yeah. Serve the fear, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I'm trying to look up, um, work out your faith in uh, fear and trembling. Yes, in Philippians two twelve is work out your your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mm -hmm. So. That is the question. How do you know that you are, uh, how do you know you're saved, right? And that's where Paul then condo uh, condones or uh, implores the Philippians to work that out in fear and trembling because um, I think Calvinism provides the greatest, uh, theologically speaking, in how it, its methodology of, of, of understanding the scripture gives the reader the most tools the most hermeneutical tools to access uh, a, a proper understanding of Scripture, which fosters an assurance of faith. So uh, it, it's never one thing or the other. You're consistently striving against sin. So if you are engaged in sin, uh, for example, one, like First uh, John says, uh, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you then contradict Scripture there because you say well, you know, I don't have sin right now. I did have sin. And then you, what you're doing is you're contradicting Scripture by saying you don't have sin now. And by saying that, in fact, you're engaging in sin because you're lying. You see? Mm -hmm. So those are gauges. Those are certain gauges to know uh, how much assurance you should have your, your faith. As Jesus says, like, you will know them by their fruit. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the end of Galatians. You read the fruit of the Spirit. These things that are the outgrowth of one's justification, the one the outgrowth of one's faith, these things are that we use to assess kind of more visibly the condition of the heart, which is the justification of man before God, mm -hmm. i.e., right? Mm -hmm. So no, no easy answer to that. Okay, so in a sense that when you mentioned that the the they bear fruit that. Um, in order for for you to assess that someone is saved, it has to have like, it has to bear fruit or have changes in their lives of some sort. In order for the to, for you to assess whether they're saved, it's not that they're saved because of works, but that because they're saved, it's event eventually they will have works. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, that's the discussion that James has in, in James 2, which ironically enough Roman Catholicism almost uses as an argument for faith and works. Um, but we, uh, Protestantism doesn't see a contradiction between Paul in Romans mm -hmm. 4 and James in James 2. Yeah. So yes, we would look at the faith says, uh, what does it say, can... can um, can a workless faith save you? Kind of a thing James says in James 2. Mm -hmm. It'd be like, faith without, no. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, yes. Now, it doesn't mean that that faith is not, it doesn't mean that that faith cannot yet be legitimate. Like, it could be a legitimate faith. It just means that you should work out your faith, your, your faith with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because indeed, if you do have a legitimate faith, which justifies you on that criteria alone, faith, but then you do not pursue to enact that faith out into the world, which is the product of works, then you should very much question whether or not that faith is legitimate in the first place. Mm -hmm. Okay, then, then this, this, this brings back the, to, uh, the top uh, topic of carnality, right? Uh, if I was saved before, but now I'm like sinning and uh, for, for like rejecting Jesus Christ in my life, was I ever saved? Or am I just a, a Christian right now, but uh, just carnal? How would you look at it? Mm. Okay, repeat this specific scenario again so I can make sure that I uh, 
uh, attempt to answer it well. Uh, in, like uh, two years ago, I was a sincere Christian. I had a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I and I and I was uh, and I was saved. You know, I accepted Him into my heart, and I and it was sincere. I did it with fear and trembling. But then after like maybe because it's now I, I I've had a huge doubt in my heart and I've forgotten Jesus Christ and left the faith. So the question is, was I ever saved in the first place or am I hmm. just a carnal Christian right now? That's yeah. The, so, yeah. 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 The simple answer to that would be just to go to first John two, where it mm -hmm. says that they went out from us that it should be shown that they were never truly of us, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the simple scriptural answer to that. And if you rely on God's word as true and substantive, then you don't, then, then that is sufficient. But we yet need to ask the question, how, why or how, right? And so um, why is it that their faith, was it that their faith that they had at that time that was supposedly sincere, why did it not persevere or persevere? Mm -hmm. Why didn't it persevere? Mm -hmm. Right? And the basic argument is because the faith that they had may have been sincere, but sincerity is not the is not the substance of faith. Mm -hmm. The substance of faith is perseverance. It's Romans five, it's Hebrews eleven, one, it's uh it's first Peter one, it's the per a true genuine faith is not a moment of sincerity but a lifetime of perseverance. So that, that's the issue. I can be sincere in the moment of believing that God doesn't exist, and I can be sincere in the moment of blaspheming him, right? That does not yet mean that I cannot have forgiveness and that then I cannot transition out of that. Sincerity doesn't count very much mm. uh, at all because we're errant, right? Okay. So what counts is the substance that transcends sincerity? If if that's in, if that's the the case that you're standing on, then uh, I would uh, have look at for example Peter who uh, rejected Jesus Christ at the moment that he was uh, asked mm -hmm. three times. Right? Would you call mm -hmm. that uh, be that he was sincere before, or and that after he he rejected it and become became like a carnal Christian, but. But as as you say that because it persevered, then it was truly uh, he he was truly saved, as you can say. Is that is that your point? Yeah, yeah that's a very good point because you not only have Peter uh, rejecting Christ uh, there at Christ's uh, arrest, but you in in Gethsemane, but you also have Peter uh, sitting with the Judaizers and not standing firm in his conviction, like the revelation that he had to to. Uh, to, that he had in Acts, I believe it's Acts 10, mm -hmm. for example, uh, to eat of things that, in a, according to the Old Testament, were unholy foods. They yeah. they were dietary prohibitions, and so and so you can see Peter is quite a flip flopper, right? So he would be a flip flopper with regard to rejecting Jesus, to sitting with the Judaizers, mm -hmm. uh, and yet the vision. For him to flip flop was given by God, and I'd say that he was sincere in all of those moments, right? Mm -hmm. He was sincere. He was sincere in his faith of Christ in Matthew 16 when he professed him as the Son of God. He was sincere in his rejection of Christ at the moment of the fear of persecution, mm -hmm. and yet he was sincere when he proclaimed the gospel in Acts 2, and he was sincere in his uh, imposing of circumcision onto the Gentiles in Galatians in Galatians uh, 2. And he was probably also sincere when he authored both First and Second Peter. Mm -hmm. You see, so it is not sincerity that constitutes faith. It's perseverance. Because God doesn't say the moment that you fail, well, you sinned, that's it. You're done. You're condemned in, in, to an eternal separation from me. It is, it is quite like uh, a, a uh, graph, uh, like a line graph that goes up and down a little bit it's two steps up one step down two steps up one step down two steps up three steps down three steps up one step down three steps up you're consistently going upward toward christ you are consistently getting up and getting back on the horse because sincerity doesn't very much matter 
insofar as we're taking into consideration the substance of faith, because faith is one's being that cannot be relegated to any moment in time. I guess See what the, I'm saying? Yeah, this reflects the uh, one of the five tulips, I guess, the perseverance of the saints. Yep, yep, and irresistible grace, because what allows for the perseverance of the saints is that they are given such a grace that that irresistibly that is that is irresistible it, it doesn't matter if you if you fail you yet see the glory of the lord in such a fashion that it that your own indiscretions and those things that cause you to get on your knees and beat your chest as in luke 18 with the tax collector you yet say when you're being crucified on the cross like the criminal next to jesus we are being justly condemned because we have done inerrant things. We, or we have done errant things. We have done abominable things. But God is true, and I am not going to forsake, I will not forsake the beautiful reality of God's trueness for my own justification, for me being right in other people's eyes. Mm -hmm. you, you're more willing to condemn yourself than you are God. Well, now that you mentioned irresistible grace, I would have to present the the counter arguments to that that a lot of people would say, like, um, if uh, if it, grace was irresistible and I had no choice but to accept it, then was I ever free to trade with God, or or not, right? That would be the question that a lot of, especially Armenians or even of, of evangelicals, would present. Yeah, yeah. So it should definitely be uh, probably no surprise to everyone that's listening to the podcast that uh, I think that Arminians are wrong on that issue. You know, uh, 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 lovingly, you know, and compassionately that I think that they are entirely wrong. No, in fact, no, you never had a choice to choose God. That's, in fact, why you needed a Savior, because you cannot choose something outside of what your nature dictates you to do. Paul says that pretty unequivocally. Uh, particularly in Romans 8, that the natural man has no capacity to please God and obey his commandments. What is the primary commandment? To love God above all, with, with your mind, mm -hmm. your heart, and soul. Mm -hmm. And if you are a natural man, you have no capacity to do that, right? No capacity whatsoever. So this is the issue then, is that if you do it, and if you do it not only sin sincerely, which sincerely right does not ultimately matter as we discussed the issue of perseverance but it matters in the, but it matters in the sense of uh it matters throughout the whole course of one's perseverance so if you are pursuing god then you ultimately um oh shoot i lost my train of thought then you will ultimately find him it's not up to you who chooses it's up to god who elects and saves uh, because ironically, you'll see that the people that you would say, like, uh, we look at atheists, right? And they'll say, for example, oh, you know, like, I am see sincerely seeking God. If God exists, he uh, would know what thing I need to believe, and he would give me that. But yet, I don't have that, so I'm not convinced that God exists. And then you ask the second question, okay, what if you got that thing, and then you realize the thing you needed to believe came from the God of the Old Testament? They're like, oh, no, I, you know what? I might believe he exists, but I won't worship him. Well, belief is commensurate with worship. God's not going to give you the capacity to believe that which you will not worship, right? So that's the issue is that God gives an irresistible grace to some, but not all, not everyone. Mm -hmm. So Then the question mm -hmm. would be is that because, for example, um, God gives irresistible grace, then why why doesn't uh, he give irresistible grace to everyone, right? Because th that would be that would mean that um, God just uh, only chose uh, several or some of the humans to be saved and not everyone. And by so and how did he judge people and into or how did he make decisions on who to save and not to save? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question, and ironically enough, I think that it is a question that Scripture almost intends explicitly to not answer, because then you are attempting to give the answer as to 
upon what is God's decision or what is God's decision contingent upon, mm -hmm. right? Why does God choose some and not others? The, the synergists necessarily must say in the final analysis of things that God chose those who he foreknew would choose him. So in that equation, necessarily the final factor in or the final factor in that equation is man's choice, not God's choice. But I would say I would just go to scripture that they also appeal to as true, which says explicitly that it is not up to the one who wills or runs, but upon God who has mercy. So that is so the so if you read then Ephesians, Ephesians says in Ephesians 1, according to his purpose, according to his purpose, several times, several times. And that is a chapter that is explicitly based on predestination. So it is God predestining some to salvation and then not others. That's now that's not can be confused with double predestination. But nonetheless, positively speaking, God chooses some and not others based upon his own purpose, and his own purpose cannot be contingent upon something less than him or outside of him, because then necessarily he would not be fully ase or possess true aseity, which means true autonomy, absolutely a lack of dependence upon anything other than his own inherent being. And so that is, and so we can ask the question, why does he choose some and not others? But if you try to give an answer to that, you are necessarily lessening the autonomy of God because you will necessarily say that his decision then must be contingent on something outside of himself. Is this is this somewhat like occasionalism where uh, uh, that um, everything is con uh, everything that occurs and everything in the, that exists is contingent upon God directly? Um, in one sense, uh, in an explicitly Christian sense, you can say that because uh, now I am not super familiar with occasionalism myself, so. I could run into some problems attempting to uh, make correlations because I'm sure that I would just have um, some of our Muslim friends come and correct me and I would be shown to be a fool. But um, you can say, for example, uh, Romans 8, um, oh, what is it, 32, I think? Um, it says that uh, we know, uh, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now you notice that that is distinct only on, on the side of those who are saved. It is not true on the side of those who are not saved, you see. So that's the issue is um, God is preeminent in all things, but not the primary cause of all things. You can read, um, this gets into the doctrine of compatibilism. Let me see if I can pull up Isaiah 65. Okay, so for example, in Isaiah 65, which is a well-known creation passage, you see here he says in verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. He said, here I am, here I am. To a nation that was not called by my, by my name, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices of people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And he goes on, who eat pig's flesh, uh, and he says, uh, finally, um, but you did not seek me, right? So that's the issue is that he is offering, and you also have Ezekiel, I believe it's Ezekiel uh, 18, that says that he desires none that perish, but that they should repent and have everlasting life. And I believe that that's actually quoted in 1 Peter as well. So it is very true that you uphold the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. That would be compatibilism as it's represented in Scripture. Though God does elect, those that he does not elect, he does not yet not appeal to. He's still appealing to them. He's still asking them to come to him but within the realm of human responsibility, they refuse. And so that almost correlates uh, 
their non-election. It correlates to their non-election. You have in Second Peter where it says that they they sin as they were destined to do, or they blaspheme the name of, of God as they were destined to do. But that destination is not the same thing as a predestination. It's not God's positive saving salvation of their souls. It is him appealing to them to repent and to turn, giving them both general and special revelation at times, and they yet refusing to do so. So in their condemnation, they That's are not allowed. That's problem in there, though, in, in, in the sense that when you mentioned a Sadie earlier, that God's uh, autonomy cannot be contingent on, a, on lesser, lesser beings, then yes. in the sense of like the difference between predeterminism and de determinism, as you said, like um, because predeterminism is is also ha is mainly that God's uh, foreknowledge is contingent on the the actions of human responsibility in that realm. So I didn't, yeah, yeah, I wasn't saying that. It, it's certainly not contingent. So his election is not his lack of election in the condemned is not based upon their own choices right he doesn't save them he doesn't give them the capacity to turn but yet they are responsible for their not turning but they're why? responsible for the realm of human responsibility for their not turning so okay. they are they are so and so how, I, how about this and i would present that because there's e uh, even the slightest uh sign or 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 inch of human responsibility then god is not that, that does not have a sadie how, if, what, no. how would you say No, that? because you would, you would go to Genesis 50 where Joseph's brother sold him into slavery and he says, for uh, do not fear when they are found, when, when they're found out and they're before Joseph and, and then they realize that the dude who just saved them is actually like second in command of all of Egypt and he could just have their heads chopped off. It says, fear not, for am I in the place of God? For what you intended against me evil, God intended it for good. You see, so though God uses their evil actions, they are yet held responsible for those evil actions. It's just as Satan is, who sent, who allowed Satan to test Job? God. Okay. Now, what are what where? How would you explain Job's trials? Would you say Satan did it, or would you say God did it? Well, overall, God did it. Overall, God did it, and you wouldn't be wrong. And that's the distinction between, like, um, I have to look up the verses again, but in Second Samuel and I believe First Chronicles, where in where they're giving, where David calls for a census, but he calls for a census because in Second uh, in Second Samuel it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled, and then it says Satan provoked David to a census. So you see, there is a compatibilistic nature there where. Creation is responsible for what they do because within the realm of their own autonomy, which is a bondage to sin, they're yet held responsible for the choices they make within their nature. God is responsible for breaking some individuals out of that nature and redeeming them in Christ, and yet they still can sin. So it is somewhat, compatibilism is necessarily somewhat of a paradox. It's not a contradiction. But it is a paradox. If you read scripture and you come away from scripture uh, attempting to assess this kind of a dualistic reality and you and you say, you know, I don't know how, but it makes sense. You're upholding the word of God as true. Right. Because you don't know exactly where the line should be drawn or if there should be a line drawn at all between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But if you negate either one, ultimately, you're necessarily refuting the Word of God, because the Word of God upholds both. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the interesting thing. Well, when you said earlier that, um, for example, in, in Joseph's brothers, that um, the evil that they did was actually God's part of God's plan. So in a sense, in, 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 in a dualistic sense that God made them do the evil things that they do but the blame uh no. goes to the brothers right no because if you if you phrase it in that way that god made them do what they do 
then God is finally and ultimately responsible for evil. He is necessarily the primary cause. You see, he is not in the sense, in, in a sense of a secondary cause, that they are, they are the primary cause in their own evil, yet God uses that as a part of his divine decree toward good. It is how you have redemption through evil is because, in fact, God can, as in Romans 8.28 says, all things work to the good of those who love Christ. Yeah, and, right? and when, when you mentioned, like, because God is the secondary cause, and then if, if man is the primary cause, then there is no SAD happening. That the, because uh, in a way that because man is the primary cause or has the blame for his own uh, sins and, and guilt, then even that means that God isn't uh, the cause of that, the primary cause mm -hmm. of that. Yes, if necessarily you do as you do, which is create a, a hard-line causative uh, division between the two. Mm -hmm. You say that one must cause the other. Compatibilism is, 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 will always affirm that God is the final factor. He's preeminent in all things that occur, but, you, but does not attempt to create, in every instance, a hard-line causation between the two. They are responsible because they are the primary responsibility in the temporal realm because within the temporal realm, they choose to pursue what they choose to pursue, right? They chose, rationalized, and walked through the reason for them selling Joseph into slavery. That was them. They chose to do that. That doesn't mean that they then operate outside of God's sovereignty. It is to say that man is free to choose whatever he cho desires to choose, but where his choice conflicts against God's choice, God's choice wins, and God's choice to win does not yet negate their their ration, rational faculty to choose that decision. Okay. So it's difficult, and it is intentionally a paradox, because indeed, I would say, how do you reconcile the eternal with the temporal? If, in fact, you could have some kind of reconciliation between the two, you would almost negate the divine. You would almost invalidate what it means to be divine, to have omnipotence, right? Because omnipotence means all-powerful. And if indeed God is all-powerful, then he orchestrates all things to work to the good of those who love Christ without indicting himself of evil, because then he would not be good. So it's, it is a paradox. It's very difficult and I would say almost impossible to fully explain in our in our own uh, intellectual ability to reason through these things. Okay, but for me, like I see a huge problem in in the in the emphasis on God God being all powerful. I, I would I do believe that God is all powerful, but. I would like uh, set the standard differently because I think that Christianity, uh, the center of Christianity, is Jesus Christ, right? And He is the center of every of everything because and He and He is the Son of God. But what what happens in this uh, narrative between God uh, uh, searching for man is that. Um, Jesus Christ instead God instead of be because he was all powerful he had to go through the the process of of salvation and through through well the challenge of evil rather than just surpass it or overcome it so in a way i would say that um God, God, the attributes of God sort of of in a way ha have to I don't I wouldn't say contradict but they clash with with each other where he 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 has to uh, go through things like for example um uh in order to because of he is so all all loving he had to sacrifice his own son in order to save mankind you know and yeah I, I agree with that i think that's where then god's sovereignty uh becomes what you might describe as divine intervention right mm -hmm. so you wouldn't say that god could be both 
merciful and just to a criminal at the same time regarding the same sin mm -hmm. because that would be a contradiction yeah right okay so in that sense like you're saying god had to almost um work through sin right yeah. like he that would be um that would be like um correct because in the sense of like retributive judgment mm -hmm. it is to say that there is a standard of punishment for violating law regardless of intent right and that standard if it is not upheld in fact that standard is then violated mm -hmm. the standard is not upheld if it's not upheld it's the law of non-contradiction right mm -hmm. so if if god has to pay the sin for for those individuals like he has he has to do that um it's i don't know i don't know if i'm actually hitting on your point because i don't know how it how should expand for me a little bit yeah. in what you mean god how it would be almost be a contradiction of his attributes for him to like come into the world and having to die uh, how do you mean that yeah for example um I would uh, uh, deny natural theology, right? Like for example, um, because God, if God, because God was uh, already perfect in and of itself with the perfect harmony within the Trinity, that he 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 wasn't forced to create because of his nature, right? He he wasn't in and that natural creation for for me, I don't believe that. And, and I and I guess that because God has his his own autonomy, he chose this uh, to create out of his own will and not because he was a a, a turn, an eternal creator bound to create and create and create. That I don't believe in 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 that. And, but I would and in in to connect this uh, the natural theology to to why God had to go through it. I would, I would, uh, I would believe that um, because we humans were given given by God to have free will, you know. So, and, and this free will, um, it, it means that we are free to choose. We are free to choose to love God, uh, we, in and of ourselves. So, it, all accountability leads to us, and that's why I think that. Um, uh, in in my own uh, understanding of God's love, is that um, He went through sin because uh, and worked through to to save humanity, because He 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 could not. Um, well, it's 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 wrong to say He couldn't, but that He 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 is His God's justice or God's wrath. Uh, wouldn't be able to trump God's love, you know. So, but the the thing is that um, when you, when you look at the the cross, uh, you can see God's judgment and God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, it personified in the in the actions of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And for to me, there was no contradiction that occurred there, but rather a the the combination of them and and th that's how i look at it um yeah so i don't know i mean i for the most part don't have a problem with anything that you you said because mm -hmm. um um essentially i don't know exactly what you mean by uh with regard to like eternity past like was god forced to create um you know i i would say no god was not forced to create yeah any eternity past he was free to choose because he is the most free being. Mm -hmm. I don't know how then that would relate to asking the question of whether or not we then are free to choose him. Because I think that uh, Romans 5 uh, in, in John 6 is pretty explicit that, for example, John 6 says that no one can come to me unless the Father who draws them gives them to me. Like no one has the capacity to come to the Son unless the Father draws him. So it, it's pretty explicit there, if you ask me, even if you read John 3, which is the most famous passage of almost the whole Bible, is that, John, is that 
God for so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Okay, well, what is, what is contingent for belief? A, a new birth. And his discussion with Nicodemus in that chapter says explicitly that how can one be born again? Indeed, you cannot, because then he makes the, the metaphor of the spirit. The spirit go, is like the wind. It goes where it pleases, and it does what it desires. And he's referencing Ezekiel 36, 26, which is that I will give them new desires, so I will turn their heart of flesh into a heart of stone, and I will cause them to obey my statutes and my ordinances. Mm-hmm. And so there is this issue necessarily that though I would affirm with you that God is most free— in eternity past, he was not dictated by some kind of timeline external to himself that says he must create. To then transpose that on on his create his created order would be wrong because it doesn't actually substantiate the basis for human autonomy in the first place. Mm-hmm. The question is relatively open: is do we have true autonomy? Because in Ezekiel it says, "The soul who sins shall die." And Paul then asks the question through Romans, for all, not explicitly the question, but the statement that for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, hold on, let me go there because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jack it up. Um, two, two, three, two. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the result of sin? Death. Why have all died? Because all have sinned. Mm-hmm. Do we have any capacity, autonomously speaking, to not sin? Can we all just choose to obey the law of God apart from God? No, nobody ever has. Even John, even in the new creation, the inaugurated creation of uh, Christ coming and bringing about a new age, John yet says that if anyone says they are without sin, they are a liar. So even in that condition— we do not have the capacity then in the in the new creation condition where we have the spirit of God that says, Abba, Father, we yet cannot help but sin. We still yet sin. So if you're to say that we are free to choose God, you would have to uh, uh, substantiate that with, a, with what constitutes freedom, mm-hmm. what constitutes autonomy apart from, what, from non-autonomy. Because I think Paul does that very well. But I think that you would be in in disagreement with Paul and even Jesus in John 6. So that's a very difficult question because, of of course, the implication that comes out of that is, well, then if I can't choose God, why do I even try, right? That's almost the worry. That's the concern. But that is where then compatibilism, again, comes into it to say that you are responsible within your own means, which is a bondage to sin, even within your bondage to sin, as Martin Luther in his book wrote, you have the responsibility to pursue God. This is why you, it, Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 1.15 and says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. Actually, it's not the kingdom of God in Mark, I think. The kingdom of God is more explicit to Matthew. But that's the issue. You may not have the, the, the capacity to submit the knee to God, but if you so desire it, God's not going to turn you away. There is some autonomy in a creaturely will though it is a, an autonomy that is bound. That autonomy which is bound and has no capacity but to sin does yet desire freedom. And so that is what Paul implores those who are in Christ to do in Romans 6, Romans 7 and 8, is to pursue the goodness of the law. Is that, like in Romans 7, well, I, you know, when I seek after, I, my body desires me to do things that I, I don't desire to do, and in, me, in that struggle... I testify that the law of the Lord is good and true. Mm -hmm. So there is still yet value and worth in pursuing God, though we know that we are bound, right? It is seeking freedom, and it is seeking the jailer to free us that we may have our love, Christ. Mm-hmm. But and but then uh, when you know the inevitable thing that problem I guess would be for example um what would be your motivation to share the gospel knowing that um it's already bound to happen you know or there's you know, limited you know, how's, how's it bound to happen right how's it bound to happen like if I asked you well it, it it's it if if it's uh. It's gonna happen. If it's gonna happen, then it's gonna happen. You know, no matter what. But, but how? How? Right? 
how would you answer that? Okay, it's bound to happen because the proclamation of the gospel is the means of God's sovereignty in this world. So someone's going to be saved regardless of human action or inaction, okay? But you are, insofar as you obey the will of God, you are God's means to his sovereign, to the implementation of his sovereignty in the created order. Um, for example, um, I don't know if you know uh, Esther 4 well or not, but it says, pointed, let me find it very quickly. I wish I remembered the exact verse because uh, uh, Esther 4, ah, okay. In 4.12, Esther 4.12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this, right? So this is the issue of God's sovereignty. You are called to be the means of God's sovereignty. If you are not the means of God's sovereignty, as is, was the case with Jonah, it doesn't matter because you, you have no capacity to negate the will of God, but you do have the capacity to be the will of God. Hmm. See? And that's, and that's very intimately scripture, scriptural. You are called in Matthew 28, 19 to go and proclaim the gospel. But if you don't do it, the means to one's salvation will yet be fulfilled elsewhere. If Jonah is not going to listen to God, which even when he tried not to, God's will was yet fulfilled. And that's in Isaiah as well. Who can turn back the hand of the Lord? Right? So you have yet great motivation because either, as in Esther, you are going to perish, or you might be preserved and fulfill the will of the God. But even if you perish, the will of God will be will be maintained, but you will be judged for your lack of obedience to, to God's uh, will of doing what he says. Like Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, right? Why does Jonah call Yahweh Lord, Lord, and yet try to flee from his will? It's kind of problematic, right? So you need to listen to the Lord. You need to proclaim the gospel because where you are the proclamation of the gospel, you are the means to God's sovereignty in this world. And it's necessary. It is necessary. That is why an obedience to God is so necess uh, necessary. It's Romans 1. To bring about the obedience of faith, right, is to believe that God's will in calling you to, to proclaim the gospel is good because the gospel is good. It's you desiring his will. And if you don't do it, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. All things work to the good of those who love Christ, who are in Christ. So it's very interesting if you pick up on these nuances in Scripture, because this Scripture is, as you see in Isaiah 10, with the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria desired nothing to do but to pillage, rape, and destroy. But this was God's judgment against Israel. Right? So God's will is going. God's will will occur either through the wickedness of men or the obedience of men. No one can turn back the hand of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And one last question, Jesse, because it's it's been awesome talking to you. Um, what what then would be your uh, maybe encouragement to those Christians who would uh, hesitate to to share the gospel because they have doubts or they they have like um, uh, false beliefs that oh because it's we're all it's a limited atonement, irresistible grace, and unconditional election. Then it's there's no point to sharing the gospel. And what is the gospel to you also? My encouragement to them would be to not rest upon their own reasoning of the doctrines of men, but to read scripture better. Mm -hmm. Because if your, primary, if your primary loyalty and allegiance is to the word of God, the word of God does not fail. And if you think that some doctrine of man is leading you to do something other than what you know that the... the uh, the will of God is, then you need to find in Scripture where it says to obey God and then obey God, right? Mm -hmm. And if you, if you are, and I, I would say that I think that you are interpreting 
a particular doctrine incorrectly at that point, because if you ask a compatibilist and a Calvinist who's worth his weight, and if he's worth his, his weight in gold, then he is going to tell you that that is not the implication. That would be hyper-Calvinism, and that is not the implication of these doctrines, but also persevere in faith and read Scripture intimately. Read it as if you are speaking to God who you love, right? Yeah, and um, uh, you have anything to plug, uh, Jesse? No, I mean, you guys can, uh, you guys can if you guys are interested. I'm not on there as much because I'm trying to be more responsible with my homework, but... If you uh, if you go to the Devil's Advocate blog Facebook page, we post memes and links, resources every once in a while there. And then in the coming years, we'll also be a little bit more active on there as we will create a YouTube channel. But um, I appreciate you having me on, and I hope that everybody uh, appreciated listening to me ramble because I have a problem of not stopping speaking. So <laughs> yeah, man, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, it's awesome. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.